Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, lead us. Let us see what you have in store for us and to, to learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 9. Last time we met, we talked about Jeremiah wanting to be saying, I don't have enough tears for all the stuff that's happening to it. And we talked about the fact that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He talks about crying for his people a lot. We talked about the evil of Israel at that time and the fact that he was saying that people are constantly lying. And we drew a lot of comparisons to our day and age from all of these things being said. So verse 7, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them, for how shall I do from the daughter of my people? Their tongue is as an arrow shot out, it speaks deceit one speaks peacefully to his neighbor with his mouth but in his heart he lies in wait shall i not visit them for these things says the lord shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this for the mountains will i take up weeping and wailing and for the habitation of the wilderness a lamentation because they are turned up so that none can pass through them neither can men hear the voice of cattle how the fowl of the, both the fowl in the heaven and the beast that are fled, they are gone. And I will make Jerusalem heaps, a den of dragons, and I will make the cities of Judah desolate without inhabitant. So here is the continuation of the declaring of the destruction. Because of all the lies, because of all the deceits, because of all this, he says, Wherefore says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them. And this literally is he's melting to refine, to clean out. And then to try means to assay. So these are the words used of the oarsmen. They come in and say, I have my ore. I'm going to melt it down. I'm going to clean out all the impurities. And then I wanted to say, how, much, how pure is it? How valuable is it? So God is saying, my people... Because of all their sin, I'm going to melt them. You know, have we ever felt like God was melting us? <laughs> Not physically like it is right now at 103 degrees, but, but in our daily life where we just say, God, can you turn down the heat just a little bit? Just a little bit. And God is saying, no, I want to turn it up a little higher. I want to get rid of all the impurities I want to prove what is there. And, you know, we've talked about this several times. God does this all the time. He takes what we learn, what we think we believe, and he puts us in the fiery test and says, do you really believe it? I'm going to test the, the value of what you say you believe. And this is something that's critical. He's telling the children of Israel, you say you're my people, but you're not worshiping me. You say you're my people, but you're not being honest. You say you're my people, but you're not obeying me. Now I'm going to turn the heat up and see what you're really made out of. And he does this all the time and has done this from the very beginning. And will do this all the way to the very end of time. What do you believe? Are you going to be pure and true in what you believe? And God understands, first off, that we're not. But this is the whole thing about the refiner's fire. 
The refiner's fire keeps the heat going and boils out and simmers out all the impurities. And God is saying, I'm going to take you and I'm going to refine you. And he sits there very patiently, turns the heat up and removes the garbage, turns the heat up, removes the garbage, turns the heat up, removes the garbage. And meanwhile, we're saying, God, I don't like this. This, do this doesn't feel good. And God says, the glory that shall be is worth it. And we need to really understand this is God's plan. And then he goes, very interesting, he says, and it doesn't read very easily in the English, for how shall I do for, my, for the daughter of my people? Literally, a simple way of translation is, what else can I do for my daughter other than to purify her? All right? And that's literally what it comes out in the, in, to be. I'm going to do this because this is what it takes to purify my child. My daughter, he says. I'm going to purify her and I'm going to do what it takes. And over and over again, God will do what it takes to purify us. To make us more righteous, more holy. We will never be perfect in this lifetime. But his goal is to make us holy and righteous so that he can point to his children and say, that is what I expect you to be. Paul told Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. He was very confident that he was being a good example most of the time. And he's telling Timothy, I want you to follow me. We should be righteous enough that we would be able to tell somebody, follow me as I follow Christ. Not that I'm perfect, don't follow me as when I don't follow Christ, but when I'm following Christ, follow me. Take my example. And our goal is to be that kind of an example. To love people the way God loves them, to be kind to people. And it is so easy for us to fall the wrong way when these trials get hard. But it is also times when we do it right. And we can go, God, you are purifying me. And our goal needs to be to say, God, I thank you for purifying me. Not, God, this is miserable, stop, which is most of our prayers. But there have been times when I've gone, okay, God, thank you for all of this. Help me get through it. Because God is not trying to hurt us. He's trying to do what is best for us. And we need to understand that. And this is the hard part for us. We start looking at things and going, God, I don't like what's going on, so it needs to stop. And God says, well, I have a better plan for you. God, I don't think I like your plan. He goes, well, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, God never took us on as counselors. <laughs> he really doesn't care what we think about what's going on. He doesn't really care about whether we like or don't like what he has planned for us. He says, I have a plan that is good. And if you understood and I understood what God's plan was, from the very beginning, we would be very happy to take his plan. If we could see a decade down the road, a century down the road, a, a millennial down the road, maybe we were doing something that will infect, impact a millennial and a millennial. You know, and he says, if you just knew what I was doing, a thousand years. And there are things that happen where you put in place generations that will impact a longer period of time. 
Now, most of us aren't going to impact a millennia. Most of us probably aren't going to impact a century. But we all have things that happen to us or that we do that will impact a decade or a year or a month. And God is saying, if you just knew the future, if you just knew where I'm going to take you at, you know, half a century from now and say, I want you here, and it takes this back here to put you in the right place there. And we can all, hopefully, if you've walked with God long enough, look back over your life and say, okay, God, I'm beginning to understand why you put me through what seemed like hell back then, but it was to prepare me to minister, to prepare me for what was coming now, which is even worse than what was before. (laughs) But we go, God, thank you. You're preparing your, 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 your love and your care. And he goes again, their, their tongue is as an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. In our day and age, how many people speak nothing but lies? Now, it is really sad to watch people that are speaking lies. Now, and we can be mean and nasty and go all the way politicians. There are so few politicians that speak the truth. You know, very few salesmen speak the truth in in many cases. And in our day and age, we're back to just what he's talking about in their day. People speaking lies. And not even thinking twice about it. Matter of fact, most of them justify their lies. Well, we got to make sure that they do what we want them to do, so we've got to tell them what what we want them to believe. And it's not even good and God is judging it and he says this is what they do and it says uh, they speak peacefully to their neighbors with their mouth but in their hearts they lie in wait they're they're saying oh everything's good everything's good you know this is really not a problem it'll all work out in the long run as they're waiting to stab you in the back and trip you up and watch everything fall. And this can be anybody. You know, if you're trying to make a business deal, and people always will try to make everything sound really good and try to get, get it over on you. And all of this that goes on, people that speak lies constantly. You know, we have a nation where marriage does not mean anything anymore because people don't mean it when they bow before God and the, and the courts to to honor their vows and they get divorced (laughs) and we have a problem people lie all the time and again I say this so many times it's very simple I am never surprised when people sin because we're all sinners I'm never surprised when a sinner sins and we're all sinners so I'm not surprised when anybody sins now I am more disappointed when Christians sin because we should know better but I'm still not surprised when a, when a Christian sins. And this is what God's talking about. These people sinned. And they've trained themselves to always sin. And our day and age is getting just like the days before Noah, when it said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're coming back into this. Jerusalem was like this. We're coming back into a world that everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. They will tell you what they want to tell you. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false. It doesn't matter to them. They just do what's good for them. 
And we as Christians need to stand out very clearly to say we have a higher standard. Now, will we live up to that higher standard all the time? No, but we need to say God has a higher standard and by his grace and his power, I want to live that standard. And it's very interesting because people will say, well, you know, you need to sue that person because of what they did. You need to divorce that person because God wants you to be happy. You know, I don't know where that's said in the Bible, but, God, you know, but that is quoted all the time. God wants us to be happy. No, God wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be his children. And in this world, that is not going to make us happy. Jesus was a perfect person. And he was persecuted every time he turned around for, three, for four years. And they finally put him on a cross. And he took that with joy, not happiness. He took it with joy. Why? Because he looked beyond the cross to the salvation of his people. Paul said these light afflictions are nothing compared to the glory to come. We as Christians should not be looking at the pains and trials of this world. We should be looking at what is to come in heaven. And because there is going to be hard times on this world, plain and simple. Number one, this world is run by Satan and his minions behind the scenes. And people don't like righteousness. He doesn't like righteousness. The lost world doesn't like righteousness. Because when you shine the light on something, it's not the, the darkness, the dwellers of the dark do not like having light shown on it. And they rebel. And they strike out. And we're seeing more and more of this as we go along. And this is what he is saying. Be aware. Be aware of all of this. Then God says, shall I not visit them for these things, says the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Vengeance is mine, is really what he's saying. I am going to bring judgment. My nation, my, my daughter has re rebelled. I am going to bring judgment. Always remember, though, God's judgment is not designed just to hurt and make us feel bad. It is perfect discipline. His discipline is to try to get us to turn to him. Even during the revel revelation of the 21 plagues that are going to come upon this earth, God's purpose is to bring people to him. He's not in heaven rubbing his hands, oh, how miserable can I make life for them? That is not God. Um, uh, now, we sometimes think that's what he's doing. The world thinks he's what he's doing, but he's not up there saying, I just want to make life miserable. He is being a good discipliner, and the discipline should be designed to bring people to repentance and correction. And this is when I had to discipline some of my kids over the years. I never just wanted to hurt them. I wanted them to learn to not do the same thing again. Now, what does that mean when you're going to make sure somebody doesn't do the same thing again? It has to hurt. <laughs> it has to hurt a lot. Does anybody remember when littering fines were about $100 many, many, many years ago? Well, they said the fines are not high enough to stop people from littering. So now they're very, very high. And they still don't stop people from littering. <laughs> But a discipline must hurt.
because if it doesn't hurt, there's no incentive to not do the crime or the sin again. And this is where the world is falling apart in today's world. You know, we give our children timeouts. Well, for certain children, a timeout is going to be a good, be, good discipline. For most of them, it is not a good discipline. It's not going to change their mind. It's not going to be a big deal. We need a punishment that fits the crime and makes them not want to do it. Now, as my kids got older, they got less and less spankings, and they had privileges taken away. One of them had the car taken away for a week. Just happened to be the, the week of their big date. Didn't go over very well. Uh, but it goes costly to them. Can't the time. Huh? <laughs> right. Basically, it's what it amounts to. But it is exactly what it amounts to. You've got to understand that a punishment has to hurt. And we hear it all the time in the prison. Well, I didn't do anything worth this. Well, courts disagreed with you. Jury disagreed with you. Uh, you know, I, I only did drugs one time when I went to prison. I'm going, I don't buy that because I've met many people that have done it many, many, many times and they end up be before they end up getting punished. Uh, but we have this whole process that God says, I will bring this punishment. Verse 10 says, for the mountains will take up a weeping and wailing for the inhabitants of the wilderness, a lamentation because they are burned up and none can pass through. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled, they are gone. God's saying, I'm going to bring judgment. So much judgment that even the wild animals abandon, abandon the land. And when Assyria, well, Assyria for, for the northern kingdom, Babylon for the, for the southern kingdom came, they wiped out the land. They wiped out all the buildings, and apparently the, most of the animals fled because of all the violence. The army was so large. But God made it a desolate place. You know, and we think about this. None will pass through it, God says. It is going to be desolate. When Israel came back to the Promised Land the third time in 1948, does anybody realize that they returned to swampland? It was all swamp in 48 when Israel took it over. They, they was given to them by England with the, with the accord, international accord, but because the Jews did not, uh, the Arabs did not want to leave the land, the Jews bought most of the land from them. And the Arabs were laughing all the way to the bank as they overcharged them for swampland. That the Jews immediately started draining and turning into the best farmlands and, and, and mineral rights in the world, and now they all want it back, saying it was stolen from us. Well, most of the land was bought and paid for when you look at the histories. But this whole idea, the land became desolate. Nobody wanted to live there. And God has said, I'm going to do this. When the Jews came back under Cyrus and Darius, under Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back to a desolate wasteland that was not swamp at that time, but it was totally ruined. There were no buildings for them to come back to. 
and they had to totally start from scratch. This is the world that they came back to. God says, I'm going to send you away and I'm going to make it a place that is a ruin, a place where people aren't wanting to live. Kind of wise on God to make sure nobody wanted to live in the land that his people belonged in, but it was their discipline to lose their land and lose their property, to, to lose all that was there and have it redeveloped. Now Israel is a profitable land with all the resources they need and producing food for the world and water for the region. And they produce all the stuff that they need for that area and they still do not get the respect of the nations around them. The nations still say, well, they're miserable, they're unfair to us. As they sell them water, sell them food, sell them, sell them minerals. It's the only democracy in the Middle, Middle East that is a true democracy where anybody can run for position and win. Uh, and it's one of the few democracies in the world, uh, republics in the world, excuse me. We don't have any democracies in the world at this point in time. Um, and so they are an ally. And verse 11 says, And I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons, and I will make the city of cities of Judah desolate without inhabitants. Now this word for dragons is a very interesting word. It's tannum, and it literally means monsters. You've got, a, you've got a new NIV, and the jackal is the worst translation of the possible t- yeah. translations for that word. Um, many of the older ones have actually, the ones written after the 1800s, uh, have translated as dinosaurs because they would be large creatures that would be considered monsters. Um, and I believe that is probably the proper translation would be, we would call them dinosaurs. Um, Dragons, if you read all about dragons, you look at the dragons in descriptions, they're great big animals with, with four legs, long tails, long necks, that, uh, and sometimes considered serpents with legs. And if you, you look in the history and the art out of the world, you'll see pictures of dinosaurs on all kinds of buildings in the, in the ancient world. Mine says jackals. Yeah, don't, jackals is, jackals is the, new definition because they don't want to come up with dragons were obviously mythical in their idea and they don't want to say that they're dragons because man didn't live with dragons because they, they you know because they bought into evolution so you've got to understand the reasoning behind what they're doing uh, because literally the word tannin means monsters and jackals are not monsters they can be mean they can be nasty but they're not monsters by the definition they're like a dog. They're a hyena-type dog. They run in packs, and they can be mean, but they are not monsters. <laughs> well, they might act like monsters, but... <laughs> yeah, they're kind of they're bigger than coyotes. They're meaner than coyotes. They're more like hyenas. Um, so this idea of jackals in the new translations is very bad, but that is because these new translations have already bought into the lie of evolution and therefore the dinosaur man did not walk with dinosaurs, so they could not be talking about dinosaurs. And again, God's word says that they were created, that first in six days, everything was created. So dinosaurs and man walked together. Why did dinosaurs get extinct? They couldn't live in the, the, in the new world after the flood. 
and they eventually died. Why do animals go extinct even today? Because they can't make it in the world that they're living in. We, have, we lose a species of animals every year, at least one or more animals dies out and goes extinct. Why did the dinosaurs die out and went extinct? They couldn't live in the, in the world. How long did they live? Quite a while, quite a while. And I do believe that they were the dragons of the, of the ancient world. And uh, we do know that various of them have been around. Uh, we know that the Indians have described, uh, oh, name jumped right out of my, the flying, huh? Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds but, uh, uh, yeah, anyway. And we know that they were seeing them, they described, they just, not Tyrannosaurus rex, but the flying bird, the flying one. Anyway, pterodactyls, that's the word. Pterodactyls, they very clearly t described pterodactyls. They've been drawn all around the world, and yet they're dinosaurs that couldn't live with be anywhere near man. Uh, we've seen this over and over, and you see uh, Triceratops has been carved into all kinds of, of temples and buildings in, in India and all through Asia. So we know that the dragons were dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs lived with man. So when I'm, I just want to say this. This is, this is dragons, uh, dinosaurs that he's saying, and making it a den for dinosaurs. Now, why would people not want dinosaurs in their land? I don't know that I would want a great big 60-foot-long uh, uh, brontosaurus or something tramping through my fields. It would be, make me very evil, uh, angry that that was happening. So it says, I will make it desolate without inhabitant Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? Who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? For what the land, per for what the land perishes and is burned up like the wilderness that none pass through. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law, which I have set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imaginations of their own heart and after Baalim, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and gall for, and give them, and worm, wormwood and give them the water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the heathen whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till they have consumed them. So here is God's statement. After all of these things, all these bad things, he says, I'm going to bring destruction. He says, who is the wise man that understands this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? So he's saying, who is listening? Who is able to speak? Because where does wisdom come? Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. And he's saying, who amongst you is, is wise? Who amongst you understands anything that I am saying? And we already know that in Jeremiah's day, there wasn't very many people that were listening to God. They were completely worshiping idols. And God is saying, who out there is going to speak for me? We're getting awfully close to that, and even in our day where God can say, who is wise and who has understanding? Because we have so many churches that don't teach God's word, do not believe God's word, 
They will tell you they're the God's people. They will tell you that they're following God. But when it comes down to it, they don't know his word. They don't believe his word. Right now, we're in a time when people are going, well, you can't really believe the Bible. It's so full of errors. It's so full of symbols. You just got to believe us instead. Uh, no, thank you. I think I'll believe God's word. All right. And so it says, who is understand for what? The land perishes and burnt up in the wilderness that none can pass through it. So God is saying it is going to be fulfilled. At this point in time that Jeremiah is speaking, there were very few righteous. Remember when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he went to Abraham and said, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm doing. And remember, Abraham bargained with God. God, if there's 100 people, if there's 50 people, if there's 20 people, stops at 10. He was very, Abraham was very sure that there were 10 righteous people in Lot, uh, Sodom. Why? Because Lot, his wife, his daughters, and their sons-in-laws sons, sons -laws were in that land, and he figured at least that family is going to be righteous. Turned out they weren't. How many people in today's world, as a percentage, do we have that, is, that are righteous? It is getting harder and harder to find righteous people. And it's going to keep getting harder because we have abandoned most of our children to being brainwashed by the, by the public system. We have not doing that great a job of teaching our children righteousness. Many adults don't believe in God's word and righteousness to begin with. And we're seeing this world quickly fall. We're watching our country fall from its position that it held. It, you know, it started out as a very righteous country. I'm, you know, not necessarily Christian. Not everybody was Christian, but there were a lot of leaders who were Christian. There were a lot of people that were Christian. And over the years, it's fallen further and further away from the Bible, further and further away from God's word. And now we're reaping the harvest of that fall. We threw God out of the schools with prayer. We threw him out of the out of the Bible, out of the schools. And now what do we get? Basically war zones where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. It kind of reminds me of the, of the saying there where if you clean, clean out your mind and you keep it all swept and clean, something else is going to come in. Yeah, basically we threw God out. Something has to fill the vacuum. There has to be something. That the world will not exist with a vacuum of power and authority. Something must fill it. And if we're going to throw God out, Something has to happen. What have we seen when, when countries take out a government somewhere? We see a power struggle for the new government that's going to take over. There is no such thing as a vacuum in power. And God is saying, I'm, who is there? And it says in verse 13, and, and the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein. When people reject God's law and forsake it and won't obey it, God says, judgment will come. What happened in our country? Basically, people originally in our country, they were very much following God's word. Everything was built upon God's word. We had a majority Christian world. Eventually, 
people started saying, well, we believe in God's laws, but we're not obeying them. And slowly they stopped obeying. Then they just decided to throw out God's laws altogether. And once they did that, it was like, okay, where is the boundaries? And this is the problem that we have. When we throw out God's absolute authority and say we don't believe in his absolute authority, where does our authority come from? It comes from a bunch of people, whoever strongest, saying this is what I believe is right. And what are we seeing in our country? We're seeing riots. We're seeing protests. We're seeing all kinds of things for people to push for their desired outcome. And God is saying, it's not what I want. It's not what, you're not obeying me. And this is something that we need to understand. The more this world gets evil and throws God out, the harder our life as Christians become if we want to honor God. Because they're going to come after us. Because, well, we threw out God's word. Why are you still believing his word? And they will come after us hard and keep coming after us. Because they have forsaken my law and obeyed not my voice, neither walked. But they have walked after the imagination of their own hearts and after Baalim, which their fathers have taught them. Their imaginations, the stubbornness, the hardness of their own hearts. You know, uh, and this is the thing we need to be very careful of, that we don't get a hard heart and start doing things our own way. We need to keep a soft, tender heart to God's word. Be in his word, read his word, study his word, listen and obey him. And not only were their hearts hard, but they were following Baalim, which is the fertility goddess of that area. And he's going, you're making the bad decisions. You're not even following me. And this is the Israel people that he was talking about. You know, too many times people look and say, well, they're Jews. They had it together all their time. No, they didn't even have it close to having it all together. You know, people will say, you know, very interesting when you talk to people, well, that first century church had everything perfect. Well, you haven't read the book of Acts or any of Paul's letters that, can, that t corrected issues. All right. The first century church had as many problems or more problems than we have. It was just more directly related to the apostles. But we need to keep this in mind. Are we seeking God always? Or are we seeking after something other than God? And this is the hard, easy thing in our day and age to do because it is so easy to not do things God's way. There is very few people who are going to condemn you if you follow the world's way. Uh, and condemn's not even the right word. Let's say correct you to, to follow God if you're doing, doing things your own way. And it says, verse 15, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, which is God of the armies, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and, with, and give them the water of gall to drink. This is not a good thing. God is saying, I am going to make their life miserable. <laughs> Wormwood is bitterness. It's a very bitter, bitter herb, and gall is very bitter. In other words, he's saying, I am going to make their life full of bitterness, full of hardship. And 
again, the purpose of this is to get them to turn back to God. His goal is, things are so miserable, remember back when it wasn't so bad. <laughs> All right? God puts us through hard times, oftentimes, to say, remember what it was like when you started following me. Remember. This is why I've even said times, do you remember when you first got saved? The, the burden of guilt came off you. Your joy of the Lord came into you. A new heart was placed into you. You had a desire, hopefully, to follow God. And over time, that fire dies out in many people. And God is saying, remember. All through the scriptures, he told the Jewish people, remember. Look back at what was. And his big point was, remember the exodus. Remember Passover. Remember your bondage in Israel and the freedom that you had because of the deliverance. And over and over again says, make memorial stones and remember. We need to do this in our own lives. Remember, where was, your, where was a high point with you and God? Write it down. Remember it. Then when you're in the midst of the valley and you're going, God, this miserable, nothing is ever going right and don't think anything ever is going to go right again, you can go back and say, no, I remember. I remember when God did this. I remember when God was moving in my life. Now, we can't live on a mountaintop forever for lots of reasons. Number one, we'd have nobody to witness to because they're not on the mountain with us. But... Just imagine, if you were always having good things and, and everything worked out for you, how often would you pray to God and ask for help? If you're like me, probably not at all. God, we got, I got this. and Everything's going along just fine and smooth. We're, no, no problems at all. Or you just stay over there and I'll, I'll call you when I need you. And God says, okay, let me give you some problems so you'll call on me. Now, he wants to be our Lord and our Master. He wants us to call on Him. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 23 says that He gives, He sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Now that's kind of a strange thing. If you've ever been in the military or anything, the last place you're going to go and have a feast is in the middle of the battlefield. You have your feast afterwards. You give them rations on the battlefield. But God says, I am preparing a banqueting table in the midst of your enemies. Yea, when you go through the valley of the shadow of the death, I am with you. If you read Psalm 30, uh, 23 very closely, it's very interesting when you read it because it's so strange. I'm going to walk through a valley of the shadow of death, but God, that means it's dark. It's going to be making me afraid of death. And you're going to make me eat in the presence of my enemies? In the middle of a battlefield, you're going to set up a banquet table? This is what God does for us. He says, I am so strong, you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to take care of you in the midst of all the bad stuff that's going on. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to provide for you. And just think, a banqueting table. That is not just here, here's a little bit of food, here's some bread and water. He says, we're going to have a party in the midst of your enemies. But there's enemies all around you. And we need to understand, when the enemies are all around us, God is still there. He's still going to provide the banqueting table. He's still going to make it work for us. 
He says, I will scatter them among the heathen whom neither they nor their fathers have known and, and I will send a sword after them till, they ha- till I have consumed them or, dis- or literally have uh, completed the di- discipline. This is going to happen to them when they go to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar takes everybody out of the land, moves them around, the, around his nations, all the nations, the 120 uh, nations that he had conquered. He sent them all over the place and dispersed them. When they were dispersed after the end of the Roman Empire, they were dispersed through all of the Roman Empire. And it took them a lot longer to get back together that next time. But over the years, the Jews have been chased after and persecuted and killed by multiple groups. You know, um, one of the most devastating ones in recent history was uh, uh, Hitler, but he's not the only one. And anti-Semitism is on the rise again in Europe and most of the world, even creeping back into America. That Satan wants to get rid of these people, and God says, "I'm going to let." I'm going to let life become miserable for you until it is complete. The ultimate completion is when they go through Jacob's trials, which is the tribulation period. Seven years where most of it is aimed at them. There's going to be the worldwide calamities and Satan is going to be going after them to try to destroy them. And it is only going to be God that rescues them. And we need to understand Satan does not like the Jewish people. Why? Because they are the way that God is telling time. The Messiah came through the Jewish people. The end days are all marked by the, by the, by the Jews. They come back to their nation. They build, build their temple. And God says, this is where, it's going, where everything is going to happen, at Jerusalem. And it's a timepiece for God. And the world is going to be judged. And then Jesus returns. And for a thousand years, God reigns from Jerusalem over the whole world. And he finally finishes what he, what he said that his job was as a Messiah. First one was to come to save the world, and the second time would be come as ruler. And this is where things are going. Verse 17, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider you and call, the morn, call for the mourning women, that they may come, and send for the cunning women, that they may come. And let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and their, on our eyelids gush with the waters. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear pre- receive the word of his mouth. And teach your daughters wailing and every one her neighbors lamentation. For death is come into our into our windows and is entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without and the, and the young men from the streets. Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field and in, as the handful of, after the harvestmen and none shall gather it. So here is the extremeness of this judgment. Jeremiah says, thus saith the Lord, consider and call for the mourning women. Now, we don't understand this necessarily, but when somebody died, there were women whose job was to go mourn and wail for that dead person. 
They'd be hired and the good ones could make a terrible racket to show how sad everybody was in that house. And they would scream and yell and mourn. And God is saying, send for them because I am bringing death. And he says, bring for them and call for the cunning women because there's not enough of the mourners. There are not enough people to bring an adequate mourning for this nation. God is judging his nation. He's sending them into captivity. And they're not, they're not getting up there. And he goes, and make haste and take a wailing that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with water. Now these women, these mourners, they were professional at it. They could cry, they looked miserable, and then they would go home and, and go back to their regular life. If you remember when Jairus brought Jesus to heal his daughter, they came back and there was the people wailing and, and crying. And, and Jesus said, what are you wailing and crying for? She's only asleep and they laughed at him because they knew death, this was their job. They went out to where people died and they were making a huge noise. And this is what that, that's what's being talked about. These people, they could cry on a, they, they were kind of actors. They could cry easily. They knew how to make tears come down. They looked miserable. Uh, they would you know, be dressed in just the right garment to, to you know, we, we in our day and age would say black, black clothes. Uh, no bright colors, no smiles on their face. They were wailing and for the loss of the family. And it says, gather all these people, for a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? How are we destroyed, they're saying. Remember, we've talked over and over in Jerusalem, then and in Jesus' day, they always looked at the temple and said, God dwells in this city, we cannot be taken. Our God is strong. You, we're worshiping Baal and, and Ashtoreth and Moloch and all the, and Gamesh, all these other gods, but God dwells in this city. What a bizarre way they thought. I don't understand it. Because they were worshiping everybody but God and saying that God is going to protect their city. If he's that strong, worship him. <laughs> you know, don't, don't be worshiping the other gods. And they were totally spoiled and they were completely confounded or ashamed because their dealings were cast out. They lost their, they were going to lose their habitation. Nebuchadnezzar came, he destroyed the, he destroyed the wall, he destroyed the, the city. He even destroyed the temple trying to get all the gold out of it. Remember the temple was covered with gold when they tried to remove it? They actually set fire to it and then they got deeper into the cracks, so they broke down every, every stone of the temple was taken apart so they could get every bit of gold off the temple. And they destroyed a beautiful work of art and considered one of the great wonders of the world, and they destroyed it for the gold. The Jews did that? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Romans did it when the Romans destroyed the city. Again, good and after all the gold out of the, out of the temple. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ears receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor to lament. Go and hear God's word. This is a lamentation. And he goes, by the way, there's not enough of you. Teach everybody how to lament. And this was a skill they taught. And he's saying, there's not enough of you. Go teach everybody. Teach your neighbors. Teach your daughters. 
If, if they're out there, teach them how to wail and lament because you'll need everybody to be lamenting because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The nation is going to fall. And this is something that was very hard for them to understand. They did not believe it. It says, death comes up into our windows and is entered into our palaces. And to cut off the children from without and the young men from the streets. This is a lot of death. You know, and he's really picturing death as a, an entity, and we still do to, the, to this day many times, that, you know, the grim reaper type, type picture. He says he's coming in the windows, he's going in the palaces, nothing's going to keep him from coming in. And you want to wail, be my guest, but it's still not going to keep him out. And he works on this. He says, speak. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field and as the handful after the herdsmen, and none shall gather it. So here he's talking about this whole process, dung. Now the word for dung here literally in the Hebrew means a rotting carcass. Rotting carcass. A carcass that is just laying out in the field that is not buried. Huh? Well, it says dung here, rotting carcass. You know, we've, we've seen it, if you've seen a, you know, the cow that was out here for, for, you know, dung beetle, but the cow that just got bloated and then, you know, started falling apart, this is what he's talking about. Nobody is burying these men that are falling. Uh, they're, they're going to waste away. And then as the handful after the herdsmen, and none shall gather it. And here we're referring back to the gleaning. Remember, we've talked about this several times. When you harvested your field, you had two rules as a, as a farmer. You were to leave the corners un, un, unharvested, and anything that fell from, the, from it to the ground, you were to leave. This was the, the work that was going to be available for the poor. That was how the poor were going to. Now, some people said, okay, God, you said it only had to be a corner. I'm leaving three inches. I didn't, go, I didn't cover those five, five ones. Others left huge areas because they really understood what God was wanting and, and cared for it. So they would be very careful about this. And God's saying, even the harvest, you know, the gleanings are there, but there's nobody to harvest the gleanings, the, the leftovers. All right, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, but let his arm, let, but let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him glor that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will punish all them that are circumcised with, with the uncircumcised. Ju Egypt and Judah, Edom and her children, Ammon and Moab, and all that are, that are in the uttermost corners that dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are, are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So here are two quick verses where God says, this is what I want. He goes, don't let the wise glory in their wisdom. Don't let the mighty glory in their might. Don't let the rich man glory in his riches. Don't glory in what you have. Don't glory in what you can do. 
And this is very important because God does not let pride exalt itself in his presence. And he says, don't let any of these, he says, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. This is where our glory is or should be, that we know and that we're beginning to understand God. Now, we're never fully going to understand him, but through his word, we can understand his love, his kindness, his mercy, and all the attributes of God. And God says, I am here. Follow me. And it says, and I love this, for I, the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Loving kindness, mercy, and honest judgment. And he says, in these things I delight. We need to really understand that God is not a God up there looking to say, how hard can I pound people? How, how mean can I be to people? His delight is in loving kindness, righteous judgments, and in righteousness. When he sees that, he goes, this is what I want. This is what I want. Now, he'll bring discipline in our, in our life, but he goes, my delight is in these things. So often we look at God, maybe not us here at this church, but so many people look at God and go, well, God is just a big bad meanie up there in the sky with lightning bolts or hammers or whatever you want to look at and just waiting for somebody to, to throw them at and hit over the head. God says, no, I delight in loving kindness. I delight in righteousness. I want to be doing good things. And then he ends it with, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will punish all them that are uncircumcised with the uncircumcised. This was one of the things the Jews always believed. We are God's children. We are children of Abraham. We're circumcised. We are we, God will never do anything bad to us because we were called by Abraham and Abraham had an unconditional promise that God would never leave us. Well, God never does leave them, but he does bring lots of discipline. And this was the hard thing when the church was first started. What do you do with all these crazy Gentiles that are getting saved and following Jesus and being baptized in the Holy Spirit? And obviously you're different but they're not circumcised. It was a hard thing for the disciples because they did not understand what God was doing to build a church with uncircumcised heathens, Gentiles. And God says, there's coming a time when I'm going to bring judgment on my own people just as I do the uncircumcised. Now he's done it all along, but he's going, it's coming. And he goes, Egypt and Judah, Edom and Ammon and Moab, all these nations, they will be judged and my people will be judged just like these people. And this has happened pretty much since the days of Babylon. When, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered them, they have had trouble and they've been under pretty much the judgment of God from then. They were given their redemption after 70 years in, in captivity with Babylon. They were good for a couple hundred years and then they went back into captivity. They are not the focus of God yet. They will be again. Israel is the time piece of God. 
when the rapture comes and the church is taken away, everything focuses back on the Jewish people. And they will be called to, to teach about God and to teach about his grace and his mercy. And they won't do it fully, but they will have evangelists. They will talk about it. And we understand that God has got a great judgment that falls. And we need to be able to understand that God loves us greatly. And he has, he's looking for people that are following him with their whole heart, not just in ceremony like the Jewish people. Jewish people said, we got circumcised. We go to the temple three, you know, three times a year. We offer sacrifices. Well, we, we offer sacrifices to every other God too, but we, we go to the temple and we offer sacrifices. We're still worshiping God, but not wholeheartedly. And God says, I don't want ceremony. I don't want tradition. He wants us to be worshiping him with all our heart, with full obedience to him and belief in him. Not, okay, God, I'm going to worship you. And listen, I'm going to worship you today, God. Uh, I'm going to worship uh, you know, the Allah over here. And I'm going to go over here and worship Krishna. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to worship, worship Buddha. I'm just going to cover all my bases just in case. And God says, no, that is not belief. That is not saving belief. Saving belief says I'm going to choose one. And I've said this many times. I know that God is the only God and the only way to, to heaven, but I do respect those who say, I'm going to follow a religion, and they do it wholeheartedly. They're wrong. They're going to go to hell, but I have more respect for them than those who are covering all their bases and saying, well, I'm going to be Christian today, I'm going to be Muslim the next day, and you know, I have no respect for that, or they try to mix them all together. There's no, I have no respect for that. At least the other ones are putting their faith in something wrong and they're not going to be happy but but they have said this is what I'm going to do the Jewish people tried to mix everything all together over and over again through these periods of time they worship multiple gods and and then claim to be followers of God we're Abraham's descendants we're okay we're following God sometimes <laughs> we don't want to be people that are sometimes following God we need to be following him all the time and seeking after him. Lord, we ask you to bless us as we go about our business this week. We ask you to guide, lead us through all that we're doing. Lord, give us the strength and power through the Holy Spirit to minister to you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will 
sends you a new Believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.